Hey, this is Dave Harkins. Welcome to the Working Life Project. My guest, Luz Donahue, was born in Costa Rica and moved to the United States at 10. Although she never attended college, she built a successful career as a marketing and social media consultant. She's worked with many businesses and organizations in her career, including Desmond Tutu's Human Journey Project. Luz is also an accomplished artist who lives and works in Santa Cruz, California. I spoke to Luz by phone while she was traveling. Luz Donahue, welcome to the Working Life Project. What was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? I think growing up, there were a lot of little things that I did that you could count as entrepreneurial. I um, spent a lot of time with my grandmother as she would go and visit suppliers and place orders and look through inventory and decide what she did or didn't want to buy or decide whether something was or wasn't on trend. And although that was not me, doing the business, it definitely felt like a thing that affected me pretty permanently to, to watch her doing that. Um, but then, then as I got older, I think maybe I was 10 or 11 years old, however old you are when you're in fifth grade. And my mom taught me to press flowers on books. We put flowers that we would grow and then you stick in between books and let them dry. And somehow it occurred to me, because I also knew how to make kind of paper mache that looks like, you know, handmade paper on like a screen that I had like popped off of one of our windows and put just like a torn up newspaper inside of this blender with water and then pour it on top of the screen and make flat pieces of paper. And then about a mile and a half away from our house was a, a 99 cent store. And I knew that I could go there and get frames, get these like small four by six frames. And I would frame the flowers along with these pieces of paper and then go make eyes at all of my parents' friends and just say like, hey, you know, like I need this. Like, do you want to, you know, put this in your house? Or like, look, it like stands up. You could put it on your desk and like look at flowers all the time. And I think I actually did fairly well. Um, I think they were like $5 a piece and I probably... I mean, for a fifth grader, I think I made like a fortune of like $80 or something oh, like that. And lot. I thought, yeah, yeah, I sold quite a bit of them. Um, and, you know, over a summer, that was the whole, you know, go, going to church and you know, it helps when you're little and cute. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> to, to sell things. Yeah, it always, <laughs> everyone wants to help the little one who's trying to earn a little money on the side. Definitely, yeah. And it's so wonderful that you had that exposure to entrepreneurship so young, and you've been able to carry that into your into your adult life. Yeah, it's definitely a big, big part of who I am. Um, and I've never, I've never really thought about it as like, you know, like I said, like I, until I met a lot of other people and just got a lot more experience in the world, I didn't realize how lucky I really was. For growing up that way and just seeing that option um, as, a, as a possibility and as like a real thing that could happen 
you know, instead of like a, a dream that you wait for, you know, for a long time. What do you think you learned most when you were younger and had um, and watched your grandparents uh, work? What did you learn that carried forth into your life as an entrepreneur? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, my grandparents are very different people. So uh, from my grandfather, everybody, like our whole extended family, has like a nickname for him that in Spanish basically means like the dedicated and hardworking father. Um, and that's what everybody calls him. And that's how people talk about him. And at the same time, when I was with him and when I was spending time I at his place, I also didn't really see him like in chaotic stress or anything like that like he he worked because he loved to work and even and this is like so my grandfather like now I think he's probably 76 77 and the thing that he does for fun is he has like a small property where he goes and farms it and grows like pineapple and yucca and like all this stuff on his own so his fun is really hard work and seeing seeing that I think really affected me I don't know that it's like a thing I don't think it's something that I learned I think it's just this is how I thought that you lived that you found something that you could work at and kind of chip at and then that was like the fun of living <laughs> um my grandmother was different she was a lot more like what is like the hot new thing that I can like jump on and like make a profit on and then resell later she, you know where my grandfather just wanted like one business that was very like stable my grandmother would like you know find out about I think when she was much much younger she uh, learned that L'Oreal Paris was looking for representatives in Central America and she was one of the first people to bring L'Oreal Paris to like Costa Rica so I think from her, I learned kind of trend watching, like looking, paying attention to what, what is changing and what people are more or less interested in at, you know, given times when she sold clothes that was really important. Like, this is the thing that's on trend. And that was fun for her. That was like a, a way that she expressed herself. And, and that's definitely stuck to me in a, in a really big way, too. From reading your bio, you've done a lot of things in the last few years, from working as a consultant to working um, on some pretty major worldwide projects, and uh, and you're also an artist. Uh, walk me through your entrepreneur journey to the place that you are now. The highlight. Yeah. Okay. All right. A, a brief highlight is that when I was in high school, I had another little entrepreneurial venture where um, it started out as a school assignment. They were like, oh, you should you know, find, we should teach these kids, like, how a business works, and most kids took this thing, and they, like, you know, it was for your grade, you had to, like, at least break even, and so they would, like, go and ask their parents for stuff, and I went, and I don't know how or why, <laughs> but I taught, like, 10 girls in my class how to distress fabric and do, like, um, bleach dyeing with these, like, 
specific techniques and we did this like in our in my parents garage and that was probably the first truly profitable like thing thing that I did mm-hmm. and that was that was about my senior year of high school so I was already kind of in this mindset of like oh I could just like make stuff happen like somehow I convinced all these teenagers to wear these t-shirts with these designs that I made <laughs> I wonder what else I can do um, and at the time, so like I, I worked at Starbucks. I was a barista for a very long time. My parents were different than they are now. Um, at the time, they were very conservative and not super comfortable with me um, being part of the LGBTQ community. And so when my parents found out that I had a bunch of gay friends and that I was doing all these seemingly gay things, they it kind of lasted a little bit and they, they just, it was really difficult for them to handle it. And I ended up having to move out. They asked me to leave. And so I didn't really have a lot of choices. It was like, you have to work and now you have to work full time. And this is still, I was still finishing high school. So that also, I think kind of changed my perspective about what working hard is and how working hard feels. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was at the time, I think from the time that I was maybe 17 to like 20, I was um, going to school full time and also working full time. And somehow when I look back, that was like actually a very happy time in my life in some ways. You know, it was like I had it in me to do that. Um, when I was 21, a company hired me, a local company that um, – was an e-commerce company hired me and that was like that was that was the beginning of it all right um I had just done like a little bit like I would always um you know buy and sell my books on eBay I was like really careful about saving up my money and stuff and so I had a little bit of of knowledge about that when I came in and then it just turned into one of those things where it was a very small company there's just like a couple of people in it and, um, you know, a couple of, a couple of people who ran it and then a couple of people who just kind of packed boxes and did that kind of thing. And, um, originally it was like, Hey, like come to our customer service and answer questions and do that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. I was doing that and still, still kind of working at Starbucks. And then it turned into, okay, well, can you do this like research for us too? And then it turned into, Oh, do you want to maybe like learn about project management? And then the projects were, Oh, we need to like rebrand the company. And then I just found myself like, you know, with not any experience somehow, like directing people who were creating assets for this e-commerce company that was doing well, you know, and that was incredibly lucky. And I, you know, it's, I think a lot of people when they talk about, the things that work out for them. They're like, I can't believe that I was so lucky that this, I think that was the thing for me that was like almost unbelievably <laughs> lucky to be, to be in a situation where somebody trusted me to do that without, you know, just because they thought I was like capable. Um, yeah, and I did that for a couple years. And during that time I fell in love with one of the people who worked there and um after some time 
as I got to know more about marketing and I started to understand more of the things that I enjoyed the most about that work, I started to like fall into blogs about being a virtual assistant and being, you know, working from home and this kind of thing. And I had been working from home a little bit and um, now with a lot more trust um, in the relationships that I had in this company and also the romantic relationship that I had developed there, I just like told people what I wanted. And I said, Hey, you know, I, I think I want to go on my own and I think I want to start maybe a social media marketing company. And this was, you know, like maybe a year before that, one of the things that I did when I was like bored and trying to, trying to find something to do was I, I made a Twitter account for the company. And this is, you know, this is like 2010 or something. So Twitter in 2010 was a very different thing. And I think in, Indeed. in maybe a month uh, or so, I got them like a thousand, you know, very like well-targeted followers that were, you know, shops that might buy wholesale and that kind of thing. And so I was like, oh, whoa, this is like, this is a real thing I can do. Um, and that's, that was where I decided, okay, there's, there's more that I can do with this than just being like the wearer of many hats at a, at a startup kind of company. And so from there, I found, I found a forum called the Virtual Assistance Forum. And um, it's ran, or it was, it's been sold since, but it was ran by a woman named Tess Strand. And I had this idea, because I, you know, I like read all the blogs and all the things, and all the blogs were like, find a mentor. And, you know, I, I didn't really have anybody growing up that was that kind of person or that could, could fill that role in, in that way. So the idea that I had was I will record a video of me explaining where I am and what it is, where it is that I want to go and what it is that I can offer and just see what happens. And then what happened was that the woman who ran this like 40,000 person forum saw the video and was like, I want to know this person. And we started talking on the phone and, you know, it just started like as a, you know, conversation here and there, but she was the first person to really say like, Hey, like, I think that you could do a lot in this, in this area. And I think that you could, you've provided a lot of value just from the things that you've written forum and there could be more that would come from that. And I think a, two years or so after that she and I just had become really good friends and you know really trusted each other and she wanted to start teaching courses to the the people who were on her forum and she had a book that she wanted to teach those courses around and it was basically I mean it was it was specifically designed for virtual assistants but it was pretty much just like a, these are the basics like this is this is why you need a contract. This is what a contract looks like and needs to have. This is, you know, setting up your business license and banking and like all of these pieces, that, you know, around freelancing that are different from just having a regular job. And so I taught that course for her, you know, after being in business on my own for maybe just like two or three years. And that was a big, that was like the other moment of like, I can't believe somebody trusted me to do this. Um, because then I realized that I really loved teaching. And um, 
you know, after maybe six or seven months of doing that, she approached me and said, hey, would you maybe want to write a social media marketing course for virtual assistants? I was like, yeah, you know, so I ended up writing a book. Um, I think we wrote it in like three weeks and it made like maybe $15,000 or something wow. like that. <laughs> this is like, you know, again, like how, how, I don't know. <laughs> like, and a lot of it was just like, you know, trusting that I could do something new that I'd never done before. Um, and because she had the audience and I had the time, it just happened to have worked out. Um, and then there were a lot of opportunities that came out of that. And then I just, it was basically like a social media manager slash like, you know, digital marketing, whatever you need person for a while. Um, and then, then we moved to Northern California. Um, we moved to Santa Cruz from, from Bakersfield. Um, if anybody's like listening and knows, knows, what a stark change that is. Um, yeah, they'll, they'll understand. But it was um, it was a different world. And at that time, I had pretty much all clients that were out of state. And so these were all virtual clients. I never really, like, saw. And it's weird when you live in a town and, and you, none of your work is, like, in your... Um, so I, like needed something where I could interact with people on a regular basis, ideally the same people. And I ended up getting this like little job at a winery for a while. And that was like nice just to like see people, you know, it was, it was a good way to have, have that kind of going on. And, and then after a while I thought, you know, this is not, this is fun to do like every other weekend, but it's not enough for me to really build a community. And I had always wanted to paint. I always thought that that was going to be the thing that I was going to do with my life. I, it was the thing that I was always really good at in school. And so I just, you know, I think that's common where you think like, oh, this is the, the positive feedback loop that I've been getting since I was five, you know, and people tell you this is the thing that you're good at. And so you start to lean more and more into it. And, um, I looked into it and I'm not sure how I ended up there, but there was a studio space in Santa Cruz that's um, it's called 17th Avenue Studios. And there are, I believe, 68 artists in this building. And I ended up getting a studio space there and just working, working on my art and working on my, my marketing work somewhere outside of my house, which I really, really needed. Um, yeah, and once, once I started to build some friendships there and I don't know, I think I had this like misguided idea that I could like take that space and help them do the most they could with digital marketing. And then so I, you know, I did a lot of favors for people and was like, oh, can I like come into your studio and take some photos and post them to our page and that kind of thing. And at the time I was already like, you know, I had like a full client list and I was doing this work professionally and I don't think that was clear to people when I was just like let me do this for free for you right now because it needs to happen mm -hmm. you know it's just it, it became this thing where in time I realized like okay you can't 
you can't really offer things to people that they aren't seeking and expect for it to do something positive. Sure. But the positive outcome was that somebody who had a studio space there who I was friends with ended up introducing me to her husband, who at the time was running um, a startup for Desmond Tutu called The Human Journey. And he had a lot of needs that were very closely aligned to the type of work that I was trying to do for the studio space. And so she introduced me to him. We started talking and then he's like, oh, you should come on board. And I was like, what? <laughs> you want me to what? <laughs> um, and I did that. Yeah, I did that for maybe a year and a half in, in many different iterations. And then, you know, I think when you're working for smaller companies or even even just companies that are like more more concerned with social good than they are really with the bottom line you know um, you end up doing so many different things and there I was like managing all of their like marketing operations and budgeting but then also like getting things like the basics of the website put together and the basics of the course put together and in branding and I really, really loved it. Um, it was really like big work in the sense that it was emotionally challenging. Like this is, I think this is what I wanted out of marketing ultimately is like, it's a way to get into anything. Like if you can, if you can use that to put yourself in spaces where it pushes growth. Um, yeah, then it, it makes any work like fun and interesting. And at at this place, what we were doing is um, taking Desmond Tutu's uh, fourfold path to forgiveness and turning it into like an actionable thing that people could do day to day. Um, and it was it was just beautiful. Like you would like part of my job was like managing this community and I would see these people share all these stories about, you know, I didn't talk to my grandfather for five years and then I took this course and I was like able to get to a point where I could like just call him and tell him how I felt. And, you know, I was really close to him growing up and now, now we have a relationship again. Um, so this is very, very transformative, but also, you know, I think, I think what I learned there was sometimes when you put your entire heart and your whole soul and your whole like your whole you into what you do you can get hurt like you can get hurt because it's still it's still not your business it's still somebody else's business even if you are a contractor you know and so mm -hmm. That was the big lesson on that one, you know, and even then I still had other clients, but that was, that was big for me. I think I, I love the work so much and, and I got engrossed in it so much, but then there were also, you know, really difficult things like, you know, you can do, you can do all the disclaimers that you want and you can tell people like, Hey, you know, this isn't therapy. Please like start with a a small forgiveness and not like the worst thing that ever happened to you. And, you know, there were some people who just like couldn't, 
couldn't do that. We're in a lot of pain and I was not equipped to, to deal with emotional rawness sure. at that level. Like it's one thing to just like know how to manage analytics and like know how to grow an email list and all of that. But to hear somebody's pain and to have the right thing to say or even anything to say, that's really next level. <laughs> um, so I ended up, I ended up leaving that after a couple of years. And I think since the partnership that was built between Desmond Tutu and the, the company that kind of did the setup of all of this stuff, um, they transferred all of the ownership of that directly to Desmond Tutu's foundation. And that's, that's all, you know, it's, it's living on in a, in a different iteration and, it's definitely something to check out. I think it's it's affected even the way that I work. Just to to have that framework of being able to recognize what happened that was hurtful, and then and this is actually this is one of the really nice things about you know working not that with that particular client is like that was a thing that we actually practiced. Like we taught it, but we also practiced it. And so a deadline would be missed and then we'd be like, okay, so what, what are the facts? This was, this was a thing that we said was done on this day and it didn't get done. And that's a thing that happened. And then you go through and I tell my side of the story and then the other person tells their side of the story and we just both listen without judgment. And in the end, we both just talk about what could happen differently next time. And it sounds simple, but then in in the relationships that I had working there, it just made all the difference just to be able to say like, you know, I don't know why I did that, but let me like really think about it and let me figure out why it was that I missed that deadline. And let's see if like we could shift resources or if there's something else that we can do rather than just going like, hey, you you didn't do this and like, I'm mad about it. You said that that affected you in other ways, uh, other areas of your life too. Can you share a little about how that, how what you have learned has, have you been able to apply to other areas of your life? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know, this might be, this might be a little personal if it's okay sharing, but. Um, Perfectly fine. I. I have experienced a lot of of anger around the way that I that I grew up because I, I did grow up in like more of like a pretty like legalistic, like Protestant religious household. And that meant a lot of things. It meant um, you know, dogma that says that women are to be subservient and that you're opinions are less and and I'm not saying like I I think that Christianity is really beautiful and that's not what I grew up in was not Christianity it was something else and it's interesting because since since my parents have really completely let go of that ideology entirely but the the pain that came from living in that world and feeling like who I loved made me a bad person or who I loved made me like a person who shouldn't be around children, you know, just really kind of strange things. It took a lot for me to be able to face what had happened. Mm -hmm. And so, so this like very simple formula 
when you do apply it to bigger things, it kind of is like, like step one is like, what happened? What, what factually happened? Not just what did it feel like or what are you heard about, but what, what happened? And from there, I think it was a lot easier after that for me to just like, and I'm not even talking about actually having a conversation with my family about what happened. It's more like, how do I feel inside? And how, how am I coping in my heart with what I've been through? Because mm-hmm. um, you, can't, you can't do the other stuff. You can't have the important conversations that you need to have until, like, um, one of the things that my therapist says is, like, you know, you can get activated which is like, I think people, people talk about like being triggered. And I think being triggered is like a thing that happens when a specific event that reminds you of something kind of comes up and then you're, you're upset, but being activated is more a thing of like, my emotional state is beyond the place where I can empathize with you. And it is, it is so heightened that I can't see beyond my emotional state. And I think what, what going through that program myself and being part of that process did for me was that it helped me to see that before I could get to the point where I am talking to anybody else about what's going on or even, even trying to like unpack it, I need to just look at it and just look and see what it is. And what it was is like, these are two people who were also raised in these environments and didn't like, actually know any better mm-hmm. and met well and really wanted me to thrive in the world and wanted the best for me and we're all flawed you know and so it's complicated it's very complicated and I think I think without without that experience I don't know how much longer it would have taken me to just like be able to go home and have dinner with my family, you know, like, I really don't know. I don't know how much longer of a path it would have been if I had to like blunt force my way into being okay. How have those life experiences shaped your work and viewpoints as an entrepreneur? Hmm. I think everybody has different reasons for not wanting like the more, the more traditional life of working for somebody else and having this like really predictable, you know, there, of course that has its perks, but I think for me, for me, it's time, time freedom, but also who, who I work with, I think is really, really a huge perk. And so like having had these experiences, I think what's become most important to me now in the client relationships that I look at and the partnerships that I look at and the collaborations that I work on is, is this a person that when 
something goes wrong because nothing is ever smooth or perfect. <laughs> like everything always takes longer than you think, and it always costs more, and it's always more complicated. And if it's not, then it's a complete delight. Um, but when when things are difficult, how how will this person interact with me about it, and how can we problem solve together, and what does that look like? Um, and I think having that that perspective and like like I'll say that definitely at the beginning of my career a lot of the marketing that I did was for like people in the coaching space and the personal development space uh you know teaching like mindfulness and meditation all these things because I wanted to learn that but I couldn't like afford it Mm -hmm. worked with people like that and I think I could never I could never thrive in an environment where I can't say, hey, how are you feeling about the way this project is developing? Or like, do you have a sense that you're getting what you need from me? Or do you feel like you understand, you know, both of our perspective on this direction or or anything like that, where it's more open emotionally? And I, I think a lot of the culture now is like well, work is work and so you you don't have conversations about your feelings because that could look like weakness or that could look like you know something that takes away oh sorry about that we just we're having to move I'm so sorry almost stopped Oh, all right. Sorry about that. That's all right. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's about figuring out whether you can be values aligned in ways that are more than about profit. Right. Relationships, uh, I would agree with you that relationships are so key in an entrepreneurial environment, particularly when you're working one-on-one or in small groups, and we tend to forget that. As you point out, we tend to want just to do our work and not put a value, as much of a value on the relationship as we do on the work, and I think that's a mistake. Would you agree with that? Yes, and I think so I think it can be a mistake in terms of how the work itself develops. But the, the biggest thing to me is like, it's also kind of cheating yourself because I've done that too. Like I've been definitely in that place where I'm like, I, I am a serious business person who is doing serious work and you know, the other things are irrelevant because I'm, these are my numbers, you know? But I think when you do that, you cheat yourself out of so much more richness in the work that you do. Um, and I think it has implications for the productivity and the quality of the work too, but in the end, you're, you're cheating your heart. You're cheating your, your experience. Yeah, I would agree with that. So I, I understand that you're still doing some consulting, but you've cut back a little bit and you're really focusing more on your art these days. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. So that, yeah, that's been a journey for sure. How do you feel about figuring out how to monetize your art? As an entrepreneur, 
I would think that that's a really challenging thing to do because so many people think about creators as an artist as I want to, I want to do this for me, but not necessarily about figuring out how to monetize that work. Yeah, definitely. So I guess uh, a piece that I left out from my story is I did, um, I did have uh, what I call my corporate year. <laughs> I had I had one year where I was not an entrepreneur and I was working for a company. Um, before this, so the reason that I ended up getting this job is that I actually did manage to get myself in a position where I was completely making my full income from art. And I did that for about six months. But the problem was what I was doing was I, I learned how to do this like really like intricate hatchwork with like pen and ink and like dip pens and watercolor and all this stuff. And then I would go to these pet expos, mm -hmm. which are like a very ridiculous and real thing. Um, and I, at these pet expos, I would just like show my work and then people would commission me for like pieces for Christmas and, you know, anniversaries and whatever. And it'd be like pictures of people's pets. And they were because of how labor intensive they were pretty expensive. And so I was able to just like, you know, do three or four large paintings and pay all my bills in a month. Um, and that was great. And then when Christmas came around that year, I did 19 commissions. Wow. And I got tendinitis. Yeah. So it was like, <laughs> it was like, oh, you did the thing. Like you made it. You're like, you're doing art for a living. Also, your arm doesn't work anymore. <laughs> You can't open the door. So, you know, and I, I, I share that because what I've learned is that creative work, it's not just about being able to do creative work and getting paid for it. Yeah, you got to eat, but you also have to be healthy and you also have to be sustainable. And I realized that I would never be able to scale this business because I had this incredible limitation. And I think there are, there are other ways that I could have made it work if I had other interests or sensibilities, like if I wanted to go into illustration or something like that and kind of changed it up. But what ended up happening is I thought, okay, well, I do this, but I also do abstract paintings, and the abstract paintings don't hurt because I have a little bit more freedom, and it's less repetitive, and it's less pen work, and so maybe I can do that. And as I was figuring that out, I ended up thinking like, okay, well, as, as I make this work, can I just make money somewhere and see if, see if I can be happy that way? And I, um, I got this job and I was there for a year and, and it really was like one of those things where like, oh, my mom is so proud and. You know, I tell people that I work at this company and it's, you know, they're one social media person and it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a thing and I make good money. But in the end, you know, I lasted maybe like 11 and a half months, like almost a year because what I really, really wanted, the work that I really wanted to do 
meant more than like just like selling things to me like it what I wanted to do was like be expressive and be able to be like direct about what I was like thinking and feeling and you know not I mean there's a whole there's a whole nother there's a whole nother bunch of things about working in a corporate environment too like I felt so upset by seeing so much waste all the time so when I when I started when I went back to the art business and in the last year or so where I've kind of cut back on the consulting and I've started working on this again I think a big thing that's changed is like when I think about what I do as a business I don't feel like they're separate things anymore. Like when I, when I was doing these portraits, it was definitely like, okay, the business part is that I go to all these events and I build this email list and I nurture it. And then I make sales from the email list and like, this is enough. And then I just got to, this is the business side and this is the studio side and they're, they are separate and they don't mix. And I don't tell people that I'm a marketer and I, you know, that's like a big secret because nobody wants to buy art from somebody who sells stuff um, from a salesperson, you know, oh, whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now, now that I'm doing, I think, I think the beautiful thing about abstract work is it's just a reflection of whatever you see in it. So whatever people come across and whatever they look at, you know, they have their own experiences of it and they have their own descriptions of what they see. And that means that I can do that too. That as I talk about it, I can share my own, my own meaning and who I am as a person is a business person. I am an entrepreneur. I am somebody who enjoys watching trends and figuring out how to monetize something that I make that I enjoy that is fun and I don't think that detracts value from what I do so the big question and I haven't answered it yet the big question is can I find a way to get past the fact that when people look at creative work that makes them feel they are uncomfortable with the fact that they are also being sold. Interesting. I, I, I would like to think, and being a marketer myself, I would like to think that if you, if you tug at the heartstrings, so at the emotion, then people will lead with their emotion rather than logic. So things that make them feel, particularly in a creative space or in art, I, I wouldn't imagine they would feel like they were being sold, but maybe so. Are your experiences different? So I, I think what, what's interesting about the, the shifts in, in the art world right now is that it, it used to be that, you know, you would, you would be anointed by a gallery space or a mentor or whatever, and then they would be the ones that would expose you to the people and they would sell you for you. Mm-hmm. You just had to sell yourself to the one person, the one agent or the one dealer or whatever that could get you in front of the right eyes. And now we're in a world where that's not really that's not really how the bulk of it is happening unless you're looking at like, you know, whatever Warhol's Sotheby's is selling. Um, 
but the experience that I've had has been actually pretty mixed because I go to these art fairs or I go to events where, where I do like when I had my studio space, I would have open studios and people would walk through and question. They would feel something. They would look at a piece, they would be moved. And I'm not saying everyone, this is just, this is like a, an interesting chunk of people and they would have a reaction and then they would have a lot of questions and criticism behind what the piece caused. And that's, it's a complicated thing, you know, because I think people who understand that in order to be able to make that piece, I had to work on this for 15 years, don't question those things as much. And they're more able to just like feel what they feel and get having the piece in their home mean something specific to them and they can feel feel joy that they helped somebody continue to build this and continue to make more work and i don't know i don't know if that's the majority of people yet and i think that's shifting i think that we want more handmade things i think as we increasingly live in a manufactured world that's full of plastic the value of things that are like made with love and made from a place of heart does, you know, becomes, um, you know, it's a, it's a rarity. It's a, it's an un unusual thing to experience to like walk by something and feel like you have to have it in your home. I would think that those who are moved by the emotion would find it invaluable. So they would pay whatever, whatever you were asking for it. If, if they liked it so much, I wonder if those who are questioning the the pricing might do better with the print. <laughs> you know, they might right. Yeah, there might be another option for them. So, well, you know, if you don't, if you if you like it but you don't value it, then maybe you should buy print. Oh, that's definitely a thing I I have in the works that I'm working on, and 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 will happen. Will definitely happen. Um, and I, I think you're right. You're right, and and that's. That's, I think, the the more, the big inventory questions of this business, too, is, like, it's not just prints. Like, there are so many ways that you can carry art around you in your world. Sure. That are, you know, small and, you know, can go in your pocket or, you know, things that you can wear, or bags or all these sorts of things. And figuring out the merchandising, this piece that you're saying, like, how how do you monetize this? really is it's like tons of little businesses within one business absolutely um, so that's that's very different to me than you know the services that i have done in the past it's it, it can be complicated but you know as a marketer it's pretty simple like i'm gonna come in i'm gonna build a system and we're gonna follow the data and then whatever the data says will help us get to the next phase of where you're going it's linear in a sense but the work that I do as an artist changes like week to week. It's like, oh, I, maybe I can get this shop to buy these mirrors that have my artwork on them. And I can sell 20 pieces here and 50 pieces there and 80 pieces there. And then a commission comes in and then the commission takes up all of my time for a month. And then something else, you know, then there's an art fair. And then I have to, you know, be 
a person who runs a booth and carries like big pieces of furniture around the state and sets up like you know 12 hour days of standing like that that's another business and I, the more that I learn about it you know there's things like licensing and then that's more of a b2b thing and there's so many potential avenues and figuring out what is worth investing in and and what will people respond to? And does my work translate in this particular way? And will it feel the same way that it feels as when you're looking at it, you know, in person? Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a lot of different variables. Sure. You have reinvented yourself multiple times over a very short lifetime. How has that changed you and, and maybe defined you? Do, you? do you like where you are now? Oh, Yeah. And I think, I think maybe the reinvention thing is a little bit of an addiction, to be totally honest. I think that this is, this is the way that I have lived and will probably continue to live on some level for a long time. I, I feel much more settled in the sense that I've specialized and I love the very specific things that I do within marketing and I feel competent in them and it doesn't feel like I mean obviously marketing these days you're always learning but I don't feel like I have to like change to the point where I'm doing like a whole nother industry although I do sometimes fantasize about having a restaurant but I don't think I can actually pull it off um I do feel like I've reached a point where like okay this is these are the things that I do and these are the conditions that I am happy to do them under and these are the ways in which I know that the things that I do will make the most impact. I was going to say and I also am comfortable with that changing. Well, it's always an evolution, you know, as long as you're open to what comes next and saying yes to the things that come along. Um it's always good to continue to expand. What, Definitely. What makes you lose sleep? Oof. Health. Health. Um, these days, politics. Honestly. Um, I feel like everything is politics now. Um, I I feel a lot more emotional about what is happening in the world now than I used to before. Before, I think I, I was pretty into keeping track of, of, you know, which representatives were in which caucuses where and what, you know, what was my representative doing. And it was more like uh, an intellectual like sort of sport. And now it feels like, I have this deep concern for whether whether we can unify just as people, um, and that that definitely keeps me up. Um, Has that shaped your work? Definitely. How so? Definitely. I think that my desire maybe this is a little bit egotistical. I don't know. I don't know if this is a a complete fantasy, but I think my desire to make a business out of the artwork that I do also comes from my understanding of what art does 
as a thing. I think art is one of the unifiers that we have as a culture. One of the ways that we can see how we are similar to each other and not different is through you know, music and paintings and sculptures and ceramics and jewelry. Like this, these are the things that are least divisive. And so contributing in that way feels really important to me. Mm -hmm. What makes you feel inadequate? I think we all have imposter syndrome. And I think that is one of the things that I feel the most inadequate with all the time. And thinking through, again, all of the things that are happening in the world that I care about and feeling just how small I am in the grand scheme of things, like knowing that I can't even do something to one family that has been separated at the border that will make any difference in their whole life. <laughs> like I can't myself fix any of it. And that definitely makes me feel inadequate. This feeling of like the problems that I care about are so, so much bigger than just me. But I know it's not just me. Like, and that's a very like, what is my emotional brain says versus what is my intellectual brain says? Because I know that, you know, the process of progress is not, is not linear and is not fast and is not, it's like many, many people putting an effort and not piling up. I think that's one of the things that I feel just the most like useless with, you know? Yes. Yes. We, we live in a very different country these days. And um, I'm not sure what we as individuals can do about it, but I think if we each try to do something, uh, that's a place to start. What is it that you are unapologetic about? Mm. A lot. <laughs> I, I live a very unconventional life, and I love it. And I don't, I don't, yeah, like I, I have no, no issue making it, making it a prerequisite to be in my life, to be comfortable with that, you know, and, and that is the way that I work and how much I am or, or I'm not home and when I'm working, but also that, you know, I've, I've multiple relationships and I'm very happy in that way. And I don't intend on having children and I'm very happy about that. And I don't want to get married. And that's very comfortable for me. And there's a lot of things that I feel have taken me a long time to just, just get like very comfortable with who I am. And that's something that I feel you, know, you can't actually be fully happy until you are unapologetic about who you actually are. That's very wise. How do you Thank find you. how do you find balance 
between your work and life, your personal life? I don't. <laughs> I just don't. Um, I think balance balance is a very like um, un undefined thing. I think people talk about like oh work life balance, and I think I think what maybe what it's really about is like your ability to maintain the right amount of self-care for what you're putting yourself through mm -hmm. and self-care is, you know, your family relationships and your physical state and your mental health state, all of these other things. And so there's never going to be a point I have finally, after many years, I think I've, I've made peace with the fact that I'm never going to be in a place where I know exactly how many hours I'm going to, be working all of the time or where I know that I'm always going to have this or that priority, but it's, you know, I think finding the balance is like, what are your values and what are your non-negotiables? What are your personal boundaries and what are your desires? And how do you, how do you try to like check all those boxes at the same time? Have you been successful in doing that? No. <laughs> Not at all. Um, I think I won't be. But I think trying is is the important thing. You know, trying to make sure that I am the best person that I can be and taking care of myself enough to fill out all the roles that I need to fill out, you know? Mm -hmm. What is it that makes you feel most secure? My relationships, my close relationships, I, I don't know where I would be without my partners and I don't know where I would be without having that, that amount of, of support and dedication from like my friendships and my relationships um and also i think where where i've been like looking back makes me feel really secure looking at the past and seeing like okay i thought i was gonna maybe have to be like an administrative assistant for life and that's not what happened and i i can do more than I think I can because I've been able to do more than I thought I could. At the end of a really busy day, what do you do to recharge? A lot of things. I um, I have a garden that I'm really in love with. The idea of growing my own food for some reason, just like, I don't know, it just like strikes the hipster in me. Um. And that really does a connection to to my my food and my body and the dirt. It just is magical and very mindful, and it helps me to see how I work and how I prioritize in a very tangible way. Um, that and I I love. It's funny. My hobbies are like I'm I'm 30 going on 60 basically, but um, I love like sea glass hunting. I like to like go out into the ocean and just walk and like look through the rocks and try to find 
interesting shells and pieces of sea glass. It's just a very like meditative kind of observational activity and you can't really think about anything other than like is that shiny or not? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it feels very good. What advice would you give to other entrepreneurs? It's hard to generalize that, right? I think everybody and maybe maybe that's maybe that's the piece of advice is like figure out what your own personal rules are. And you know, it's kind of like I don't know if you're a Star Trek fan, but it's like that that character in TNG that had like the hundred and one rules or like the Ferengi that have all their rules. Right. <laughs> I think we all have we all have kind of our own like non-negotiable boundary lines and lessons that we've learned. And, you know, there are times when those rules have to be tossed out because they're not working for us anymore, but having clarity around what your current rules are, what you're willing to sacrifice and what you're not willing to sacrifice. Cause I think when you're, when you're working on your own business, it's so easy to just say like, okay, well, this is the next thing that I need to do. And this is the next thing that I need to do. And you're just kind of head down and in it. And living that way, you can just forget to like step back and assess your mental health or your level of happiness or your relationships and how well they're doing and whether you're actually doing a thing you want to be doing. I think, I think those things, like having rules and consistently reassessing them. That makes a lot of sense. I want to thank you for being a part of the podcast today. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harkins. I'll see you next time. Visit our website at workinglifeproject.com to learn more about the project and sign up for our newsletter. The Working Life Project podcast is produced by me, David Harkins. Mike Harkins wrote our theme music. The Working Life Project podcast is brought to you by David Harkins Company, a business strategy consultancy working with entrepreneurs and nonprofit organizations.